0: Hi everyone, and welcome back to The Blast Podcast, a show where we believe movies can be more than just movies. I'm your host, Steve Watts, joined as always by my co-host, The Thousand Yard Stare, and as frequent listeners know, here at Blast, we are absolute suckers for a great romance movie. We have talked through La La Land, the Before Trilogy, and 500 Days of Summer so many times on this pod, so to avoid any redundancies this Valentine's Day, we're going to talk about our favorite romances that aren't in romance movies. Before we dive in, let's hear a word from our sponsor. As always, the Blast Podcast is presented by the Blast app, which is going to be available sooner than you may realize. Make sure you're following our Instagram page at blast underscore movies underscore, our TikTok at blast.movies, and our YouTube channel at blast.movies to stay up to date on all of our latest content. There you'll find podcast clips, movie ticket reviews from Ty and myself, and up-to-date news on the progress of the app. Lastly, please make sure to check out our app's landing page at blastmovies.net, where you can learn more about what Blast is going to be. All right, Ty, before I ask you what you've watched this week, I went on Flickster earlier today, and Madam Web has opened up to critics with a 16% Rotten Tomatoes score. So after the Marvel set the Marvel record for worst box office performance, will Madden Webb kind of be the straw that broke the camel's back and kill Marvel once and for all?
1: It will kill the Sony-verse. bursts is... No amount of marketing, no amount of anything that can get me excited for this watch. It, it This thing's been dead for years. This was just the nail in the coffin. So I have a better question, a better follow-up question to that in regards to the MCU. During the Super Bowl, they teased a Deadpool 3 trailer. I went back and watched the whole thing. I have to ask you, does Deadpool 3 save the MCU?
0: It's an interesting question because with that R rating and just Deadpool movies in the past have had a lot more creative freedom than other Marvel movies. But now that it's in the MCU, maybe it performs very well and maybe Marvel sees that and changes their kind of philosophy there. Or maybe they just say, ah, nice, we made some more money and keep going about their business. I don't know... How much money Deadpool 3 would need to make for Marvel execs to really change their mind on how to make a great MCU movie.
1: Yeah, that God, it's so frustrating because you're so right. I I know that Deadpool 3 is going to be good. It seems like it has that same flair that the other two have, but it won't matter. It will be used as a marketing tool to get everyone excited for Marvel Secret Wars and then it's just a complete CGI cluster fest that no one cares about.
0: It's very frustrating um, and that's coming from a non-Marvel fan. I think it's sad to watch people kind of get stuck in their mindset and not realize that they need to change uh, to, to make more successes. So with that said, what have you watched this week Ty I'm excited to to hear what you've been up to I've been traveling a lot but I'm putting in my reps man
1: these these flights back and forth from Dallas I I get to shake it up a little bit so it's refreshing to have a couple for you but a couple at home watches first and the first one was just one of my favorite watches in recent memory and I can't believe I'm saying it but the movie was Grown Ups directed by Dennis Duggan you know this is just all-time childhood classic. Everyone and their mother watched this when it came out. And I, I just can't help but smile knowing that this movie has somehow aged beautifully. It's it's made so... It's so cheesy. All Like, half the jokes you just laugh at because they're so corny. And yet, I don't know. I just love the concept of growing up but still connecting with with the pals with the bros i adam sandler and company this is the dream life you know sharing a lake house sharing memories sharing laughs it i don't know every time i watch this movie it puts a smile on my face and it was special this time especially because i i got to watch with all my college buddies and we don't get to see each other a lot anymore so reuniting and then watching that movie where bunch of pals reunite for the first time in a long time it was it was special i this is absolutely a blast movie and it became a blast movie as i got older i'll give it a b plus because it is a little corny but it's always a good time watching this movie
0: i have a confession to make
1: oh don't tell me dude really
0: yeah um my you said everyone and their mother has watched this movie my mother and i have not and I actually went to see it for the first time about a year ago, I think. And because I didn't really have any nostalgia, I'm not a Sandler guy. I turned it off halfway through. It was a pretty painful watch for me.
1: You're like the first guy I know that doesn't rock with Adam Sandler. Like me and my like school friends, we put on Hubie Halloween when it came out. And locked in for two hours and laughed our asses off. That's so we don't disgusting. care what the project is.
0: <laughs> oh my god, man! I, I really just—he's never been big for me. Um, my parents didn't really show me his movies growing up. Besides, is bedtime stories an Adam Sandler one?
1: I have no. I if it is, I haven't seen it.
0: That's the only one I can think of that I saw as a kid and really loved. So. You don't even rock with happy gilmore i think it's good but again it just doesn't have that same sort of nostalgia for me um although while we're on the topic rest in peace carl weathers uh, great acting Ugh. talent gone that like actually crushed me when i found that out
1: rocky 3 talk about blast movies has been one of the most inspirational movies of my entire life and it's because of Apollo Creed I still watch the same training montage scene I say I watch the same Instagram reels of Apollo yelling at Rocky to fire him up and it fires me up in turn I, I know it sounds corny but like going to the gym creating discipline just wanting more out of myself it it really a lot of it did stem from Apollo Creed so it was it was crushing when I heard that news
0: yeah. It it's a perfect performance too. Um but from what I know, a great guy off the screen as well. So what else uh what else did you watch this week before we get too sad too early on this pod?
1: No kidding, no <laughs> kidding. Um I'll try and lighten the mood a little bit and next watch was fun because I got to watch it with my dad. Um our our uncle or my uncle, his brother, recommended it. Thought it was a good movie. Uh, George Clooney directed it. Uh, the Boys in the Boat. It's a movie that came out last year that I didn't get a chance to see, but um, I, you know, Steve and I were were laughing for uh, a very specific reason. Steve, I would, I'd prefer if you break this down because it's funnier when you tell it.
0: The first time I saw this trailer, I could have sworn that Kevin Costner was either the executive producer or the director or the star of the movie or something. And I could not believe I looked at the the crew on this before he got on the pod, and his name was nowhere on there. I kept on looking and looking, and I was like, how is this movie not a Kevin Costner movie? I
1: can't explain how, but this that take is somehow racially motivated. I can't figure it out. I can't figure it out. Like some kind of stigma against Costner, (laughs) (laughs) but totally man. And it has that Costner feel to it. It's this run of the mill sports story, limited character work, limited script storytelling. Just, (laughs) I don't know. Joel Edgerton comes out of the woodwork and, and kind of mails it in. He's just fine. But there's some great rowing scenes outside of that. Not a whole lot going on here i I had a good time it was it was like a fastball vanilla ice cream. This really isn't a blast movie. nothing special, but a fine watch if you go into it expecting nothing, you're gonna have a good time. I'll give it like a c minus
0: all right. I can get behind that grade i think yeah it it it's about right it's
1: it's a good sports movie, just not great, and it's not elevated beyond that so. Kind of a, kind of a, not a letdown, but just a meh from George Clooney. But pivoting pivoting from that, one of my, like, recent favorite watches, I keep revisiting Mission Impossible 3. J.J. Abrams kind of cooked with this one. It just, people weren't ready for it. This is the, how do I put this? The, the template of what's to come for Mission Impossible, why it's so successful today, and I think that's why I keep coming back to it. There's an awesome opening scene with Ethan Hunt and Philip Seymour Hoffman going at it. I this is just how do I how do I break this down properly? There isn't This isn't the best Mission Impossible, but it's the best Ethan Hunt it it completely pivots from him just being some espionage superstar like Bond or Wick and they treat him as this everyday family man kind of like a Jack Bauer if you will just an average joe that is secretly just kicking ass for the IMF and i love that they made Ethan Hunt a person and this kind of sets the the path for the next you know four or five movies where they tap into the human element of this character. There's a lot of great action here, but the best work done here is in the character work for Ethan Hunt.
0: So a rare J.J. Abrams like from you. Yeah, I mean, I like The Force Awakens
1: too, but this is one that I just come back to and it ages well. This, this movie, I don't think was, um, it wasn't big. I, a lot of people complained about this movie when it came out. There's a big, um, what is it called? He has them in every single movie. The the red herring. Oh or, yeah. You know, it, it's the rabbit's foot in this movie that they're chasing after, and it never oh, explains uh, what the rabbit's foot is.
0: The MacGuffin. MacGuffin. Thank
1: you. Yep. Um, there is a clear MacGuffin here, but I don't. I could care less. I I showed up for an action movie, and I got more than that because of the character work and. We're going to talk about that character work in a little bit. This is a blast movie that has kind of slid under the radar, and I'm going to give it a, a B-. It's a good watch.
0: Nice. And while we're on the topic of early MI movies, I did want to ask, did you end up catching Silent Night? It came out at the end of 2023, I think around Christmas.
1: No, but why does that... Oh, because it's MI? It's No, it's uh, like John Woo
0: uh, came Back. like it was John Woo's return to American filmmaking at least I'm not Remind 100% me. sure where mm-hmm. he's been but he directed MI2
1: what is the David Harbour movie not is it called Silent Night too oh that's
0: Violent Night
1: Violent Night we're mixing them up now but um yeah I did not get a chance to see Silent Night and it was one that I wanted to see and it's with that guy that I recognize from everything but I couldn't tell you his name. He's in the he's in Suicide Squad as Rick Flagg. He's Robocop in the reboot. Uh, I think he's really
0: good. Yeah, Joel Kinneman. Underrated. Yeah.
1: I, I agree. I agree. And also not Kinneman. Another guy could not tell you his name. He's the lead in upgrade. Another really fun action movie mm. with a guy that has chops, but He's like the Tom Hardy lookalike.
0: Yeah, I can't think of his name, but I know exactly. I can I can picture him in my mind. Yep,
1: he's he's one of those that guys. Yeah. But um, before I let you run your gauntlet, I do have one more watch that isn't a blast movie, and this is more so just a rant on watching movies on an airplane and why it's so hard for it to be special. I was watching Minority Report uh, on the way over to Dallas on this trip. And how I typically do it, my AirPods suck. Like, it's not an immersive experience to begin with, Mm -hmm. but they're slowly dying. I've had them for about four years, so one ear barely works, the other's pretty quiet. So if I'm not, like, pinching my ears to maximize volume, I need the subtitles. (laughs) And for some weird reason, I couldn't watch Minority Report in subtitles, so it was more of just a visual experience for 20 minutes, and there are a lot of great visuals here, but... It was lacking. (laughs) It's like watching Tenet on full volume. I was just lost. So I need to go back and revisit it. I just, like watching a movie on an airplane, it takes a perfect environment. Like if you've got the wrong person sitting next to you or if you've got a window seat right next to the wing, Mm -hmm. it's super loud because of the engine. It's just, there's so many variables you can't account for and No Subtitles is definitely one of them. That eh, just blew.
0: That's uh, funny, but I think that you might have benefited from that. A lot of the writing in Minority Report is kind of sketchy.
1: What is the last like great Spielberg movie? I even put Super 8 on the other day, and like it's good, but...
0: I thought Super like, 8 just... was Abrams, was it not?
1: Did Spielberg produce then?
0: I think so, yeah. They... That makes
1: so much more sense.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I've never been a huge Steven Spielberg guy, but I think his last... Ugh, I don't know. Uh, you know, like, maybe. people like hype up
1: Ready Player One, but give me a break. I, I, I don't know. You know, like, he had the ultimate... I wish that we saw... Spielberg and the lens that our parents see Spielberg. Like, he he went on that crazy heat check. He's got Jaws. He's got Jurassic World or Jurassic Park. He's got the indie movies. What 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 happened? Is he just a volume shooter that lost it? Lost his legs? I'm, lost his jumper?
0: I'm not sure. Um, the last like great movie I think he's made was Lincoln. The Post got a lot of buzz, but I wasn't a big fan of it. Um, Lincoln is. I'm sure you saw, right? Yeah. Day-Lewis. But before that was The Adventures of Tintin, and I think that's probably the last Spielberg I've enjoyed.
1: I never saw Tintin. That's the animated one, right?
0: Yeah. Wonderful, uh, wonderful animation.
1: Okay. All right, so I've I've run through my four. I've been dying. I've been looking at your letterbox lately. I need to hear some of these blast stories.
0: Yeah, man. I've got eight movies here. Only two are blast movies, but there's a lot of great stories attached. So to start off, I told you this and I mentioned it on last pod. I'm doing the Criterion Challenge with Ryan Boone, who is just a guest on the pod. And last week's was, uh, we started a month late, so I've been playing catch-up. And in that catch-up was Wong Carwise wise In the Mood for Love, which is a movie that I've been meaning to watch for a long, long time anyways. So I was glad to see that it made it on the list. This is absolutely a blast movie. And it's funny because when I first watched it, I actually kind of hated it. And I was like, you know, Wong Kar is really good at subtlety, but it was missing something i felt like it was too subtle um like the biggest event in probably the first hour and 10 minutes of that movie is one of the characters making sesame syrup for another character when he's sick and i go ahead it's it's crazy because after i saw this it just aged like i couldn't stop thinking about this movie and every subtlety started to just feel more and more important, and it ended up. I think this might be my favorite of Juan carwise work now.
1: Wow! Like, what what was your biggest takeaway? Because for me, I this movie is one you come back to for the lessons. Is it in the themes? Is it the bad timing element? Is the wrong person right right person wrong time? What what is your biggest takeaway from this movie?
0: I think it's just that everybody has someone from their past and well they might not talk about it ever or might not talk to them even anymore. It's it shapes who they are and will always be important to them.
1: That is that's about as uh good as it gets. I just, I think I had a similar experience to you. I don't, I don't love this movie. It's, it's a blast movie for what it taught me. But one of those movies, I, I know it's great technically, but I, it's not a Thai movie. And I know you watched this and probably knew that right away. But I will say the, the final scene is something I always come back to for some reason. So there is something profound there, but I wouldn't say it's my favorite of Y.
0: Uh, it's close between this and Fallen Angels um, but he also just does not get the respect he deserves as one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. I feel like he's not in that conversation of maybe top five uh, I think he's fringe top five, absolutely top ten
1: That's not a ridiculous take So I can't believe this You, you had a great experience with In the Mood for Love and that's one of two blast movies out of eight
0: yes and my in the mood for love blast grade is an a plus the only other blast movie on here gets a blast grade of an f but i will get there <laughs> <laughs> um, first off <laughs> the next movie on that criterion challenge while i was catching up is parasite by bong chun ho and you and i have very similar thoughts on this movie i am very underwhelmed by the social commentary in it I think that it is massively overrated, even though it is a well-shot, well-made movie, um, and is probably a 6, maybe a 7 out of 10. I don't find anything absolutely outstanding about it. I think if this is your favorite foreign film of all time, it is probably one of three you've watched, and in that three is Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings. (laughs)
1: i was just gonna say like parasite is your favorite foreign movie if it's the only foreign movie you've ever seen (laughs) um give me a break you know we could go on a tangent about just people need to watch movies with subtitles they're pretty good and they're a lot better than parasite
0: agreed um after that next movie on the challenge was being john malkovich by spike Z. is it jones or Jonze? i go back and forth
1: i always thought it was jones okay. but I, I i could you know what's funny i have ne- i don't think i've ever seen a spike johns movie i only know him from that one scene in wolf of wall street i was like oh that's spike johns apparently have you never seen, seen I
0: don't- uh what's it called um her no oh wow yeah that's no. shocking um, I think he's a great director. I think that this is Charlie Kaufman's worst movie, though. This is my least favorite Kaufman. Um, and oh, no. for that reason, it's not a blast movie. I don't really find any lessons in this. And I think that's where it goes wrong for me. I feel like in Kaufman's other work, he really has some profound things to say. And there are a couple of interesting ideas, but I don't think he explores them to their fullest extent, which... I mean, it makes sense for his first, like, big feature film.
1: Yeah, I I, I can't speak to it because I haven't seen it, but Kaufman is he's always someone that makes me think. I'm not as big of a fan as you, but his movies are always, even if it's not th- themes-wise, just visuals, storytelling, the way his stories unravel, they're... Yeah, I can I can see your frustrations here.
0: Yeah, so it's, it's not a blast movie. It's getting a blast grade of B. Um, but I will say that blast grade is so high because even though I didn't take anything from it, it is still a good movie and I had a great time watching it. There is a scene where everybody in a restaurant is John Malkovich and the only words they say are Malkovich. And it is absolutely (laughs) hilarious. They're just going back and forth. Malkovich, 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 Malkovich. It's awesome. Anyways, after that, I went to party watch Evil Dead Rise with AJ, a close friend of ours. And he, I mean, I just love watching horror movies with this guy. He gives the funniest reactions ever. And throughout this entire thing, He just repeatedly said, no, 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 (laughs) Uh, uh, the cheese grater. He was going, oh, no, not the cheese grater, not the cheese grater. Uh, (laughs) But I don't think this is good enough to be a blast movie this time. Um, But it is a blast movie in general. I've talked through how it was my, my best watch experience last year and it's still getting a blast grade of B from me after that though is Dario Argento's Inferno and I'm just going to couple this with Argento's The Bird with the Crystal Plumage because I think I want to watch all of his movies right now Um, he just always has some random twist up his sleeve Some cool supernatural elements, or not supernatural elements, but just mysteries in general. I'm a big fan of the giallo kind of subgenre, and these two movies were awesome for me. They didn't make me feel anything, didn't make me learn anything, no memories attached. So they aren't blast movies, but the amount of fun I have with them is still giving them a blast grade of an A.
1: Which is the one that... You're either a recommending to me or B is a Thai movie or both.
0: all of out of all of Argento's work? Right. Um that's tough. I think probably Tenebre. Um, okay. That one's very, very cool. It's about an American writer in Rome who is basically trying to solve like this serial killer mystery. That keeps uh, involving people around him. Very, very interesting movie. After that I watched a movie and I I paid for the Criterion channel for this Criterion challenge so I've basically just been browsing through and picking out anything I can find. So I looked and The Most Dangerous Game was on there, a movie that I have always wanted to watch but also been afraid to watch because it was famously the Zodiac Killer's favorite movie and I don't really want to be associated with anything that has to do with him, obviously. And this movie kind of sucked. Uh, it's not a blast movie. It's getting a D grade for me. Nothing too interesting there, in my opinion.
1: Whoa. I have never seen this one. Is there any, like, notable actors in it?
0: Uh, I mean, they're. it's from back in the day. It's made by Ernest B. Schoedzack and and Irving Pichel. And I don't recognize any of their other work, so I don't think I've seen any of their other stuff, but... The, the concept is semi-interesting. It's about this guy who has hunted every dangerous animal on the planet. And so now when ships crash on his private island, he sends the people that survive out and hunts them. Um, so kind of an interesting concept. I think it could be made into a movie that's a little bit better, like The Hunt. Do you remember that from like 2020?
1: Yeah, that was kind of a fun movie.
0: Yeah, I think that's what this movie should strive to be, even though it's it came like 100 years earlier. Anyways, last, last movie on the list, and the only other blast movie from the week, is Seven Samurai by Akira Kurosawa. So, Ryan Boone came home, this weekend and he was like hey man seven samurai is three and a half hours long i think we got to hold each other accountable here and watch it together while i'm home i'm like awesome yeah let's do it uh and i i was kind of dreading it just because that's such a long runtime, especially for a movie that's in black and white and does have subtitles which just kind of adds to the i don't know experience um But this is a blast movie because I will never forget, 45 minutes in, I go, oh, my God, is this almost over? And we pause it, and we realize that we had not been sitting there for two and a half hours. We'd been sitting there for 45 minutes. And the shock and appall on our faces was hilarious in a moment I'll never forget. Gosh,
1: dude, I mean, you're scaring me. This has always been on my list of, like, You need to watch before you die. This is like the antithesis of a Thai movie.
0: Yeah, my review for it was pretty funny. As you know, this was George Lucas's inspiration for Star Wars. So my review was, would be cooler if it was in space and the samurai were wizards, which I stand by.
1: (laughs) Okay, great. I mean, I feel like there's been a ton of movies with some kind of, like, theme regarding seven
0: characters you know
1: (laughs) are they all better do you know it's now
0: possible do you know what the like premise of this movie is no
1: not really other than just seven dudes with swords
0: basically a town of farmers is repeatedly having all of their food stolen by bandits and they hire seven samurai to come and defend their land um the first two hours and 45 minutes i think are excruciatingly slow and i don't see people's arguments for the good character work i really think they're all pretty one-dimensional um but the last 45 minutes are much more like high-paced action type of thing uh it's the bandits attacking the village and the samurai defending in case you were curious where that story would lead (laughs) and (laughs) it's Kind of reminded me of Beowulf. Did you ever have to read Beowulf? Oh yeah. Where it's like he kills the monster, and then the next third of the book is he kills the monster again, and then the next third of the book is he kills the monster a third time. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so say beat beat for beat or or what? It just really reminded me of like the. The attack comes in basically three waves, and it the same thing happens every fucking time. <laughs> um, that said, I I I just don't understand why this is the like in the top three I think highest rated films on Letterboxd. But the only explanation I have is a similar explanation to why Argyle must have a seventy percent viewers on Rotten Tomatoes right now, which is <laughs> those people knew exactly what they were getting into and freely chose to watch a three-and-a-half-hour black-and-white movie one night, it's I don't, it's baffling to me.
1: Gosh, I have... Argyle went from, like, one of my most anticipated to something I'll probably never watch so quick. I. It was, like, first trailer, like, oh, sweet, Henry Cavill's a spy. And then every trailer after that, Every review, every every everything.
0: It's like Voyage like, right. of the Last Demeter.
1: Oof, gosh, don't remind me of that movie. <laughs> Argyle's like the perfect Stephen and Ty go to the theaters, spend a lot of money and watch a movie kind of movie. <laughs> <laughs> just, ter- just terrible.
0: It is just miserable the entire
1: time. <laughs> Yeah, surely we'll get to a good one one of these times.
0: Uh, yeah, it it's just, like, long, long-term probability. Um, I want to jump into these top five romances in non-romance movies now. But I want to start this off with an honorable mention. This can't make it in because it's kind of a romance that shows, like, tragedy. Um, but this is from Caro, my favorite horror movie. It's also pulse in english um between Ryosuke and arue there is a romance there and it is an amazingly real portrayal especially from a horror movie of how fast a fun relationship can just decay into absolute misery and a state of like why are we still together um there's one scene that always sticks with me from this movie which is they the the two characters are sitting on a train alone together and one of them says we're both definitely here though and the other responds that's true with just a blank stare monotone voice and it's it captures the feeling of being alone even though you're always with someone
1: uh, but on the flip side though that's all you need is your person no matter what so throw that in there as well the real reason this is an honorable mention though is because i fought tooth and nail to put mission impossible in my favorite non-romance romances so at our five spot i battled for ethan hunt and Jules from funny enough mission impossible 3 but it stems beyond that movie so I don't know. This is almost conceptually like La La Land, but a little less traumatic. There's a pretty bow to this love story. And, you know, what I'm getting at is this is a great what-if or in a different lifetime. You have seen all of the Mission Impossibles now. You're caught up, right? Okay, perfect. So I think the best way to break it down is just talk through how the story of Ethan and Jules plays out and how it becomes one of my favorite romances because it wasn't something I was head over heels for in Mission Impossible 3, but it evolved into something, it evolved into a what if or in a different lifetime. Because in Mission Impossible 3, they have the perfect cookie cutter relationship. They're about to get married. Ethan is pretending to be like a, a traffic control guy or like a traffic analyst. They're, they're living this lie, so it's not that meaningful, it's not that special. They clearly have great chemistry, they're clearly in love with each other, but they're, they're living the, the what-if. It's not true to who Ethan is, or even who Jules is, but I'll get to that. Now we jump to the sequel, you know, six-something years later, MI4 Ghost Protocol. And we barely get any jewels. We get her at the very end of the movie. It turns out she didn't die off screen. Ethan's been protecting her. They're not together. He gives her one look from across a cafe and just checking in to remind her that he's always got her back and he's always going to be there for her if she needs it. But that's it. Just a little subtlety, just a reminder, but more of just a kind of just a dick kick.
0: You know what it's kind of reminiscent of? When uh, in In the Mood for Love, the girl comes back and leaves a lipstick-stained cigarette at the guy's apartment. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. This is
1: (laughs) – yes, perfect. Um, But um, in MI6, I think this is where it became something special for me. We haven't seen Jewels again for two movies, almost three if you really don't count Ghost Protocol – and they finally reunite. Ethan's moved on. He's full-fledged in the IMF world again. He's got a new love interest in Rebecca Ferguson's character, Elsa. He's made that pivot and right when he's about to save the world for the sixth time, he bumps into Jules and has to not only save the world but save his his ex-partner, his, his ex-wife. And they have this really awesome moment where After Ethan saved the world, Jules comes to check on him, and he's just apologizing for everything. You know, putting her in harm's way, that it didn't work out between them. And she just says something that always just crushes me. Look at my life, everything that, everything great that's happened to me, it happened because of you. And he still just double downs, like, I'm so sorry. I, I put you in harm's way. And Jules says to him, nothing happened here today because you were here and I sleep soundly at night knowing you always will be. I don't know why that line always crushes me, but just the fact that they aren't together but still have this happy ending like, hey, I love you, I'm proud of you. Let's just keep doing our own things because we're both happy. I feel like everyone's got everyone's got their Jules, everyone's got their Ethan, and that's why this always pops up on my list
0: it's that's a great line um but i am sorry i gotta crush you again here real quick for the entire time you were talking until you mentioned her i thought you were talking about rebecca character. Rebecca
1: ferguson <laughs> rebecca you're, ferguson you're, yeah. you're sounding like producer jack sorry um no man so that's why i love the character of Jules is because Elsa and Rebecca Ferguson's character becomes the focal point. It becomes the one that everyone, you know, the directors and the screen, screenwriters, they want you to fall in love with and buy into. And that's why that just gut punch when Jules comes back in six and you think that there's going to be something there and nothing happens. It's just this more sign of respect and sign of love. It's special. Like, the best romances are the ones that don't unfold or that don't get the happy ending. Yes, there's, like, a satisfying conclusion in this this movie, but it's not the happy ending. And I think that's why I always come back
0: to it. I like that take, actually, a lot more than I would have liked Ethan and Rebecca Ferguson. Um, <laughs> I... Now let,
1: let's move to something uh, a little more... Not ridiculous. I love your your number four pick.
0: Yeah. So this is Goodwill Hunting. Um, will and Skylar are one of my favorite romances ever in any movie, regardless of romance or not. I will always remember the first time I watched this, just thinking like, "Damn, where's my Skylar? Where's my mini driver?" Um, and she is just so understanding of Will, and like you see how much she inspires him to really see the beauty in the world but at the same time this relationship is incredibly toxic i remember watching or listening to the rewatchables on this movie and they all talked about how long will and Skyler last after he goes to california i i gotta hear your take on that um
1: it's not long but i i've always interpreted that in a different light that It's not because they were toxic. It's because Will did fuck it up. That by ending it, by crushing Skylar in that moment because he was afraid to be vulnerable, it will forever tarnish that special relationship they had. Like there will always be that broken glass that can't fully be repaired. I never thought of it because, you know, they're just two college kids and they don't know what they want yet um that's my take on it i don't think it works because will fucked it up not because they're toxic
0: i actually really like that take um i just I, when i say they i i really do mean will is is more toxic than skylar but i mean i give him two and a half weeks i think right oh <laughs> before, before imagine, he fucks it imagine up again making that drive
1: <laughs> yeah he goes right back to his old ways You're, you're tainting the number four spot, man. Like, um, let's, let's hope that because we didn't get to see it, you know, we didn't get to see them crumble that let's say he, he makes that drive. He reunites with Skylar and it all works out. Yeah. And and this is the perfect love story.
0: It's, it's all about taking the leap of faith for that. Uh, Um, the, I got to go see about a girl is one of our favorite, I think, collective movie quotes between the two of us. And it's not because you know that he's gonna end up with her forever or anything. It's because he's grown as a person because of her and because of Sean. And because of that, he's able to be vulnerable and go out and look for this girl that he really does care about. I gotta say though, and
1: be and be okay, and just will would will be okay. taking that chance that he may get hurt, which is something he would have never done at the beginning of the movie. That That's what's cool. It's not just taking a chance on the girl he may or may not love. It's, I love this girl, and I'm okay if she hurts me. I'm willing to take that chance. That's what's cool about it.
0: It It's awesome. Um, I got to say, though, Will and Skylar, I don't think are my favorite relationship in Good Will Hunting. Um, I, I gotta talk about Sean and his wife because this is arguably just the better love story in here.
1: I can't believe you didn't put, uh, Sean and his wife as the Goodwill hunting relationship, to be honest with you. This is the correct take.
0: Awesome. Um, I revisit the Carlton Fisk scene just so, so often. It's so awesome, man.
1: What Once a week. It's not even just that one. It's, the one I always come back to, too, is when he's talking about how his wife farted in her sleep <laughs> and they're just cracking up. Um, Robin Williams, just master class. But the way that he unravels these love stories as lessons to Will makes it such a profound love story and you don't even meet the wife. Like, imagine, imagine this movie is made in 2019 they green light the sequel and it's just a prequel of Sean and his wife. I guarantee that's how it would unfold.
0: I think you're absolutely correct. Um, One of the (laughs) things I have written down here is just the, the scene where Sean says that he doesn't regret any of the time he spent with his wife because of the pain he feels now. Um, I think that's a really powerful statement, a really powerful scene and robin williams just really sells it as a i've I've been through this pain i i know if, if i knew it was coming i would do it again in a heartbeat
1: gosh just got goosebumps i mean that's that's the type of love everyone's striving for is the pain is worth it that the best love is worth it good and bad
0: all right let's let's hear about more dead wives with your number three.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was just gonna say, you know, is the pain worth it? Um, I I I think Carl may beg to differ. Um, if you watch that movie after the the monologue in the opening, that brother is cranky the rest of the movie. But I would argue that Carl and Ellie's married life montage in the opening scene is better than any... It's one of the best romance stories in any movie. And it basically takes place in 10 minutes or so. But the Married Life montage is maybe five minutes. And I watched it right before we did this pod just to remind myself why it's so special. And my lord, dude, I was about to choke up right before the pod. I, It's, it's all these little nuances that make it so special this is every man's dream he's just got this he found some diamond in the rough quirky girl that he grew up and grew up as a person with as they they started dating they got married tried to have kids started pursuing their their dream vacation or their dream adventure them you know painting the mailbox weird colors and them each having their own reading chairs and Just all these little like tidbits running up the hill to do their picnic. But seeing all of these things evolve over time until eventually Ellie gets sick and dies right before they're about to go on their adventure. Oh gosh, man. I just, this is the epitome of a shoots and ladders love story. All the highs, but the eventual lows that come at the very end of a good love story.
0: I got to tell you so my buddy and I will play Rocket League from time to time and whenever we queue up the game we also queue up Spotify and we always joke with each other that if we listen to sad music we play better and the other day I we we loaded up the game I click on my Spotify day list. It's like soul-crushing film score or something like that, because it always is. <laughs> and I hit shuffle, and the first song that comes on is The Ellie Badge, which is a lot like Mary to Life, um, pretty much the same themes, but a little bit different of a cadence and uh, tempo. And I was like, I-, I almost had to just stop the Xbox and start crying. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That song is so good, but it's so crushing, I think because you know you obviously know the the story behind it, but gosh, isn't this to our point with Sean and his wife and Goodwill hunting like this love and the and the pain you feel afterwards it has to be worth it all of those years, all those memories building a life together, and it's captured so beautifully in ten minutes um it's just so profound for a a kids movie.
0: Yeah, this this truly is just if Robin Williams was the main character of Goodwill Hunting in my opinion.
1: A 100%. Gosh that. Well, hey, I got my sequel.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is they're the same character. Um I got to move on to one that's dude, we got to stop doing these sad ones. I just realized like I think besides, yeah, no, they're all sad besides Will and Skylar. Um, the, the the number two spot here on our list is from The Amazing Spider-Man. This is Gwen and Peter, which is...
1: <laughs> Dude, this is such a problem. Like, our favorite romances ending poorly. What's going to happen to us? We're cooked.
0: We We're are. Cooked. Our it's, partners are cooked. It really just shows our, I think, life attitude. Um, ba- babe, I'm so sorry. I, I
1: poisoned your drink today. Oh my
0: god. These are
1: how. These are. This is how the story is supposed to end. That's what I saw in a movie. <laughs> that's
0: that's that's absolutely horrible. Um, but similar to Goodwill Hunting, the first time I saw The Amazing Spider-Man, which was on my 10th birthday, I kept on asking myself, "Where's Mike my Gwen? Like, I just. <laughs> there's so much <laughs> chemistry on here." And a lot of it is because of Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone's real-life romance, um, which he famously said in an interview, she was like a shot of espresso. She's like being bathed in the sunlight.
1: Oh, my Lord. I I always come back to Emma Stone uh, accepting an award for La La Land, and she's thanking Ryan Gosling, and it cuts to Garfield. (laughs) (laughs) Soul-crushing.
0: Absolutely horrifying um this like legitimately like made me not believe in soulmates anymore um i love this though because it shows the relationship of two people who know that they're the right they're right for each other but it's not the right time they're they're not really even in the right life um peter just keeps going back and it's it, there's that scene at the end of the first movie that I always come back to too, where he's late for class and the teacher says, "Don't make promises you can't keep," because he says he won't, um, he won't be late anymore. And then he comes up and whispers to Gwen, "But those are the best kind." Ugh, Pete,
1: gosh, you know what? That I love Garfield as Spidey, but he he broke some rules here. I mean. The rooftop scene is just awesome between the two of them, where he reveals he's Spider-Man. But you're not supposed to do that, Pete. That's against the rules. You gotta keep that a secret.
0: When he, and uh, then... when when they throw the football at them, uh, when they're in the stands, <laughs> and then he like dents the, the field goal post. That's crazy. He he hucks it a hundred yards <laughs> and destroys the field goal post. Uh, I would love to see like a, a Chronicle type movie. Is that the Dane Dahan one?
1: Uh, yeah. Where
0: where the guys like get superpowers and then they just become athletes and they're just like, (laughs) sorry, Mahomes, step aside, buddy. (laughs) Um, I I think, I think that's actually a great concept. (laughs) Like dash running track in, at the end of the Incredibles. Um, Anyways.
1: And like not not being humble, breaking every (laughs) every world record.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, Don't get sidetracked though. This is awesome because it is, it just shows the unstoppable attraction that you can feel to someone. Um, There's my favorite scene, eh, my second favorite scene in this entire duology is the you're my path scene. When Gwen <laughs> tells the taxi driver, stop the car, because uh, she sees I love you written in spider webs across the bridge. And he he takes her up and he says, I'll, I'll go to England. Like if it's England, if it's anywhere, I, I, we're not on different paths. You're my path. And that is like just the last the worst last words ever.
1: Ugh. Gosh, soul-crushing. I am, like, under the same, like, breath of, like, these two are destined to be together, and they're on each other's paths, despite everything, all of their actions, all of their non-actions. Something that, you know, may be more relatable, after they break up, after Pete breaks up with Gwen, and they, they meet up in the park, and they're talking um, about, like, you know, setting some ground rules if they're going to be friends, and he he doesn't want Gwen doing that smile or that that weird laugh. It's such a cute scene. Um, oh, it's so good, and just the chemistry's just firing. But you've you've been there with with your partner or with someone that you're not with that you've got some weird situationship going on with, where you've got a you've got this weird tension. You know it's there. You're not quite doing anything about it, but you just—you can't help it. You can't help each other. You, you're everyone's been there. Everyone's had their Gwen. Everyone's had their Peter. That's why this one's just awesome. Yeah. And it sucks that it has such a tragic ending.
0: I have, <laughs> I have sat awake at three in the morning, just looping um, the rest of my life the song that plays when Gwen falls to her death, over and over again, just like sobbing. Um, it is, that is an amazing piece of music by Hans Zimmer, by the way. Uh, and I do think that that death scene deserved one, one thing. I I think it's very well shot, beautifully done and shows how much he, he needs to save her and he just can't. Um, but the thing I think it's missing is when they zoom in on his eye, I've seen edits where they flash through the entire relationship in his eye when he's oh. flying down there to try and save her. And if that was oh in the movie, God. I think I would just throw up and die. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's terrible. <laughs> I gotta send you that edit if you haven't seen it because it has left like a lasting impact on me. Uh, our favorite romances...
1: Soul-crushing.
0: All right, should we get to the last soul-crushing romance?
1: <laughs> Let's just keep bunkering down. It only gets worse.
0: Okay, so at our number one spot is not a movie, but a limited series that Ty and I talk about all the time, and that is Midnight Mass between Riley and Aaron. Um, I, I want to start this out before we talk about the inevitable canoe scene. <laughs> This is, like, just the truest depiction of love in maybe any movie ever, and it comes in a show about vampires taking over, like, a small island.
1: (laughs) Of course. Leave it to Flanagan to just cook up some great character work, some some great love stories.
0: But I want to talk about two conversations that Riley and Aaron have with each other before we talk about the canoe scene. And the first of those is... They ask each other, what do you think happens when we die? And there is a long poetic response that only Mike Flanagan could write because he is a little pretentious sometimes. And the the lesson of that has never been really a, these are how these two people feel about the world or anything. It's always been a, this is these are two people who feel like they can just open up to each other and talk about anything with each other. Um, and these just seemingly random conversations that you always end up having with your partners at some point in your life feel like they mean just everything when you're having them because it's, it's showing vulnerability. And that scene has always stuck with me. I don't know if, if you feel the same way.
1: Yeah, it's, a, it's in tandem with just their relationship as a whole conceptually. You know, the first time we see them you know, pair up so Riley has just come back to town. Um, we've, we found out at the beginning of the show that he killed someone in a drunk driving accident. Um, he meets back up with Aaron, um, and she is pregnant, obviously with someone else's baby. There's, there's clearly a past between these two, but they're still buddy-buddy, and they have an open dialogue and pass no judgment on each other. Throughout their entire relationship and in their entire time in this series, and it's so special to just have a friend, to have someone that you have no fear of of that judgment. You can say anything you want. You can you can feel any way you want, and, and have someone to lean on.
0: Yeah, I, I, it's you. I couldn't put it better uh, myself. The second scene I want to talk about actually plays off of that kind of theme. And that is something we don't talk about in tandem with the canoe scene enough. Riley's dream. And at the start of the show, Riley tells Aaron that he has this recurring dream where he's sitting out on the water and he's in a canoe all by himself and he can't move. And he thinks it means that he's never going to get out of this place that, that he's in. But eventually, of course, before tragedy strikes, he says, I had that dream again. This time you were there. And you see the, the visions of the dream when, when he talks about them and the, the, when he's all alone, it's, it's very solemn, very lonesome. And when she's there, it's like the happiest, the happiest tone in the world. It's absurd.
1: Yeah, he's got, it's it's not just his person, but just a vessel for trust, and that's all anyone can ask for, and I feel like the last four have been very formal relationships in a sense, and with Aaron and Riley, it it does feel a little different. Obviously, these two are, are in love with each other or love each other in some form, but this there's this nuance to it where it it, the informality of the relationship is what makes it the best romance is is the not the what ifs the 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 what is and the relationship is a it has a different dynamic than what you would typically see right that's what makes it special
0: they never have that what are we conversation or anything it's just when they're when Riley comes back these two are together and yep.
1: and he's and there yeah like you said they'd never have that conversation until the canoe scene where he just he he dumps his, his feelings on her as he's preparing to sacrifice himself
0: so i wrote out what he says on this and i want to break it down with you um so when Riley takes her out she kind of panics and says, and now you've taken me out into the middle of nowhere where I have nowhere to run. And he says, no, I took you out here so that I have nowhere to run. I'm not as strong as you. I never was. I want you to take this boat and row to the mainland and never look back. I knew you wouldn't believe that. I knew you wouldn't believe any of this unless you saw. I want you to run but I believe you're going to go back there and do everything you can to try and save them. I'm just so sorry you have to see this. I love you, Aaron Green. I've loved you my whole life, one way or another. She responds, I love you too. And he says, I did my best. I did my best. And then explodes into flames. (laughs) What a fucking monologue, man. Ugh. It says so much and it's such it's so small. It's only 5 sentences long, but it shows not only the the trust he has that she is such a good person that even after seeing the horrifying thing that's coming, he knows that she's still going to try and sacrifice herself to save everyone. He knows exactly who she is. He he has a deeper understanding of of who aaron green is as a person and confesses his love to her and one way or another he he has loved her his entire life it's so heart-wrenching and beautiful i i can't believe it
1: i think about the one way or another line more than i'm comfortable with it's so it's so beautiful and it's it's what i keep coming back to is this informal relationship that should be formal in in every relationship that no matter what happens in Riley's life in Aaron's life in their relationship together it doesn't matter in some way I will always have this love for you and gosh that's I mean this scene is so powerful but that final sentence is that's that's the dagger for me that's what makes this one of the best romances.
0: So tell me, Ty, do you have someone you feel that way about? One way or another? <laughs> yeah. And thank you for listening to this episode <laughs> of The Blast Podcast. Not at liberty to discuss the details. That is a perfect way to put it, though. I I love that analysis. Um, we all have an Aaron Green out there somewhere that um, it probably doesn't work out with, but is just always going to be so important and will always be loved by you. Thank you all for listening to this episode of the Blast Podcast. Be sure to check out our website at blastmovies.net, our Instagram at blast underscore movies underscore, and our TikTok at blast.movies for more blast-related content and news. Happy belated Valentine's Day. We hope you didn't we hope we didn't push you in a like depression-induced coma with this episode. Thank you all for listening again, and we'll catch you next week.